It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Liz Truss has been, if anything, certainly as bad as Johnson on the populism agenda. She wants people to work hard and she hates people being told what to do. The markets are looking very, very closely at political pronouncements. Together, we can ride out the storm. We can rebuild our economy and we can become the modern, brilliant Britain that I know we can be. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics, your daily guide to the corridors of power. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Today, with politics in the UK suspended, we're turning our attention to the European Union. Ursula von der Leyen giving her State of the EU speech with big promises to tackle the energy crisis. We'll have the details and analysis from Strasbourg with Bloomberg's Maria Tadeo. And as we look towards what could be a difficult winter for the NHS, we'll be discussing the challenges with John Restall from the Managers in Partnership Union. Now, regular parliamentary business here in the UK has been suspended suspended during the period of national mourning, so no Prime Minister's questions today, although you and still plenty of questions being asked about policy of the new government. Yeah, well, the news agenda, of course, very much focused on preparations for Her Majesty's uh, funeral on Monday. The conversation in a lot of households, as well as talking about that, is also focused on those soaring energy bills continuing to be a big worry for so many. And it's not just households. A lot of companies also worrying about what is around the corner. You, you remember that uh, in Liz Truss's announcement last week, she said that firms would receive equivalent to support support to households. Uh, in her winter energy plan. But the problem is we don't have those details. According to Bloomberg's sources, uh, a number of conversations between government officials and firms have so far not contained details of what unit price companies will pay this winter or indeed when the plan will come into practice. Now that is leading to concerns that the package is not going to be ready in October. Remember that's a little more than two weeks away now. So a lot of companies continuing to worry about what is around the corner as they face these rising energy bills. Yeah, we're going to stay with the subject of energy next and turn to Strasbourg, where the President of the European Commission has been making her annual State of the Union speech to the European Parliament. Now, the EU facing massive challenges in the past year, the war in Ukraine on their doorstep and the resulting energy crisis. Ursula von der Leyen using this speech to announce details of a new levy on excess profits of some energy companies. In our social market economy, profits are okay. They are good. But... In these times, 
it is wrong to receive extraordinary record revenues and profits benefiting from war and on the back of our consumers. Our proposal also includes the fossil fuel electricity producers who have to give a crisis contribution and overall our proposal will raise more than 140 billion euros for member states to cushion the blow directly. Well, listening to that speech was Bloomberg's European correspondent, Maria Tadeo, who joins us now from Strasbourg. Maria, thanks for joining us on the show today. Now, the main focus of that speech was, of course, the energy plan. We've had some details before today, but what have we learned today uh, new that's being proposed by the Commission? Look, I think a lot of the details here had already been leaked because they wanted to test the waters and see the response uh, from the market and how this would go down and, and kind of just get the ball rolling. Because don't forget here, Jan, that um, this is a story that's going to take weeks to actually manifest in the real market and have an impact on it. I think the number one goal that they wanted this intervention that would bring down prices to show the market there is a plan, there's something we're working on. They already achieved it because prices have gone down since the peak at the end of August. I think overall, though, today, if anything, we have finally a number. There's a figure behind this. And she says that if you put together all of the measures which go from demand destruction, especially, particularly in the peak hours of the day, that's where the bill just goes through the roof and you get a contribution that they call a solidarity contribution. Some other people will tell you this is flat-out taxation on fossil fuel industries and other power generators. She says there could be about 140 billion euros that would be helped or that would be used to help some of the poorer European countries and some of the poorer European households that are going to need help in the winter. And this is key politically, too, because if you want sanctions to stay on, and today she was tough, I mean, she repeated this. There is no business as usual with Russia. This is done. This is over. You need public support for these sanctions. And I think the only way to do it is to try to cushion the blow for for people. And this is why they're doing this. Maria, this is, of course, only a proposal by the European Commission. It has to be agreed by member states. Are there likely to be sticking points in this plan when it comes to those nitty gritty discussions? Look, I think there's going to be many sticking points. This is Brussels. There always is. Uh, and, and this is just the beginning of a very long road still potentially uh, to come. There's a another energy mit- meeting ministers are going to gather again. I, I've lost count, to be honest, with the amount of meetings that I've covered about energy in the past two months. But uh, there will be another one at the end of the month. The idea is that uh, they will look at the details of her pitch today, try to go into the specifics, try to really nail this. We talk about the European energy market, but the reality is, and this is very important for everyone to understand, if you want to understand the energy crisis in Europe, is that there isn't a European energy market. There's 27 different countries that use 27 different ways of powering themselves. So I think there's going to be sticking points. Clearly, this is also a political debate. We also know that support for measures vary and change depending on the location. The Eastern Europeans are 100% behind uh, Ukraine. You have countries like Italy where there's going to be a change of government. And all of this will be very important. And I think, you know, frankly, we're in for weeks of talks. Uh, as ever, getting 27 countries to agree on something as controversial as this is, is tricky. And as you say, they have very different energy needs. I see that they've already shelved the proposal to impose a price cap on Russian gas. That, that has gone, hasn't it? I mean, I'm not sure if it's shelved. I think this is something that will we'll come back and, and will be a, a theme repeatedly. We've seen in the past this idea that oil 
cold. None of this would happen. In the end, it manifested, and it did happen. I think there is some fatigue when it comes to, uh, well, further sanctions. But when it comes to gas in particular, I don't think the disagreement is about the cap. It's the format of it. There's countries that believe this should just be about the Russian cap, the Russian energy that comes through the pipeline. And there's others that say, frankly, I don't buy from Russia on the pipeline. I buy it from a European neighbor. So we need a general cap on gas prices in the European Union. I don't think this is about the gas per se. They want to get it done, but they just don't agree on the format. But in my view, I wouldn't rule it out. And if I had to bet, well, you know, we had the same conversation with coal. It happened. We had the same conversation with oil. It happened. You know, there's strong chances that this is not going to go away and eventually get done. Maria, here in the UK, the government is stepping in to cap the maximum price of energy being charged to consumers at huge cost to the taxpayer. Governments across Europe, are they taking similar steps in that direction? Look, it depends. And I think that we talk about Europe and European governments, but in reality, and this is always fundamentally the issue, uh, they vary so much. And the approach changes so much from country to country. It's very difficult uh, to say the Europeans are doing this in general lines. If you look at Germany, the Schultz administration has decided, yes, the companies has to pass or will have to pass the charge to the consumers. And then we're going to try to figure out how we can help them pay for this bill. So there will be a surcharge to consumers. When you look at the French, they've decided for this entire year, we're not going to do that. And we're going to handle this through EDF and the government will have a huge say. I think the issue here is that when we try to say the Europeans are doing whatever it is that they're doing, in reality, there's a lot of nuance behind the scenes. And a warning today from France that uh, a lot of households, businesses and government are going to be expected uh, to reduce consumption several times over the next six months to avoid uh, blackouts. Of course, France normally an electricity exporter, but there are problems there as well. With the French, I mean, they've had an issue with the nuclear. That's not a secret. They've had problems with the management of EDF. They bet a lot on the nuclear. They have been number one supporter of nuclear as one of the key sources of energy, and they've bet the house on this. But, of course, they have really serious technical issues with the fleet. They've also had a problematic summer. As the management of EDF has been called into question. There's on the hunt, or they're on the hunt for a new CEO. But I think, ultimately, uh, there's this idea that Emmanuel Macron will continue to buy social peace this year. He will cap those bills, but come 2023, it's going to have to go. It's costing an arm. Maria, of course, the energy crisis is very much linked to the war in Ukraine. That played a central role in Ursula von der Leyen's speech as well. She dressed in the colours of the Ukrainian flag and she had a special guest of honour in Strasbourg as well. How important are these symbols? I think they're very important. And the fact that today she... You know, I've covered von der Leyen since she became the head of the commission. I follow most of her speeches. I, You know, I'm very familiar with the way she talks and the tone she uses and the the kind of language that she employs uh, normally. And today, this was a very hawkish uh, Ursula von der Leyen, where she said, essentially, there's no business as usual with Russia. She was very strong on this one line in which she argued, this is not just a war in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin has decided he will wage war on the European energy market. He will do it on our economic stability, our welfare, our well-being, and ultimately what we see is a fight between a democracy and autocracy. I think what it proves also is that everyone who believed that the Europeans would throw in the towel because of the very high energy prices in the market, at least for the time being, remained defiant. 
Maria, you've been following this uh, energy story, uh, of course, over the last few months. From where you sit, where, from where you normally sit in Brussels, how do you think the European Union has been has been handling this? They, they've been doing a better job than than, than COVID, for sure, right? Um, well, did they do a bad job on COVID? I, I ultimately think overall they didn't. You know, they were able to vaccinate an entire continent at the same time with no distinctions uh, between countries. I think what you see is at the beginning, their reaction is always slow and, and there's all of these summits that need to take place. But in the end, there's a policy solution. There was a recovery fund after the, the pandemic. A number of lines that were redlined were crossed. You know, you have the European Commission that now goes on the market and taps debt market to directly fund essentially member states that was unheard of i think with the energy crisis yes you could go back and say this is a fundamental mistake of germany yes the europeans just gave way too much to vladimir putin but it's worth reminding that it's vladimir putin who started the war and now they have to deal with the repercussions of this whether they manage or not i think we'll have to wait for the winter it's going to be a very uh, tough winter but if there's one thing i've learned and i've covered the european union for a long time now that Ultimately, it's at a time of crisis where things happen and things move. When everything is fine and it's calm, nothing moves. There's a lot of bickering. When they really feel it's five minutes to midnight, that's where they get their act together. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, when the ordinary business of politics resumes, one of the main issues facing Liz Truss is the NHS and its multiple challenges. It's one of the few topics other than energy that the Prime Minister mentioned in that short first address she made outside Downing Street a couple of weeks ago. Now, last week, before the news about the Queen's death, we spoke to John Restall. He's the chief executive of the Health and Care Union Managers in Partnership. They're planning to ballot their members on strike action next month. Caroline Hepker and I started by asking him his expectations for the new Prime Minister. It was a, a very clear signal that she's going to prioritise it. And she's also made her health secretary the deputy prime minister, which might be another indication of, of, of you know, the seriousness with which she's, she's approaching health. I think our expectation is uh, with an eye to an election, we're going to see some pretty demanding 
performance targets around waiting lists in particular come from government uh, in the in the next period. There's already some really challenging targets set for uh, elective care uh, and recovery from it. And I suppose what my members are waiting for is just to see whether the change of administration means those targets are going to be revisited and perhaps toughened up even further so that 2023 becomes a year of about trying to drive down uh, particularly elective waiting lists in hospitals. Mm. Well, in fact, if you look at those new figures, so for July, a total of 6.8 million people were waiting to start treatment, according to NHS England. So um, even an increase on the 6.7 million in June. Look, that is incredibly difficult, though, isn't it? I mean, targets don't necessarily mean results. How, in your view, should we be tackling this major issue of, of the time that it takes to get treatments in the NHS? Well, I think, I mean, this is, the, this is a critical question, and I don't think um, any of my members would object to a government trying to do something on, you know, big uh, headline figures like the waiting list. But the waiting list for hospitals is not the only waiting list we have. Uh, and the waiting list itself doesn't tell the full picture. So for a lot of those people, they are waiting longer to be seen. It's not just a case of being on a waiting list. We have problems with accident emergency admissions. We have really well-documented and serious problems with ambulance handovers and response times. And in the community, we have really big issues around GP access and also mental health referrals. Something like 1.2 million people are waiting for community mental health care, which is not a statistic you often hear because we focus very much on hospitals. So one of the problems that I think we will have is if we focus on one bit of the system to the exclusion of all others, you potentially create other problems elsewhere. And also a really short-term focus on the target for, say, hospital care, however important that might be, will potentially mean you're not solving problems in other parts of the system. So if I can give you one quick example, probably one in eight people who are in a hospital bed at the moment in England are waiting for discharge to a social care setting. So they're medically fit to go, but there's nowhere safe for them to go. You can do what you like around hospital efficiency. If there's nowhere for those people to go once they've been um, successfully treated, then they become a problem uh, in Mm. a hospital. So making sure that the plans are long-term and looking at the whole system as well as focused on particular bits of the system are really important. And I think that's my concern uh, that I'm hearing from members is, Will that happen? Uh, Will we get a a very narrow focus which really stores up problems elsewhere? The other one, of course, is the workforce. So a huge limiting factor on whether hospitals or community or GPs can do the work that's expected of them is whether there are enough staff. And we've now got record-breaking vacancies in the health service as well. 10% of the planned workforce is now unfilled. How how do you fix that problem? Is this just about money? I think it's a long and short-term set of fixes. I think the immediate um, demand for um, for, uh, most of my members is to stop people leaving the NHS. So 
you know, if you think about most clinicians, it takes nearly a decade to train a doctor. It is far more effective to get an existing doctor to stay in their job and not consider retirement. So I think the BMA, which is obviously the union for doctors, thinks something like one in 10 member of their members may be thinking about retiring in the next year. You know, these are not... Uh, the the sorts of things that we want to see at a time of crisis. So I think in the short term, it's about pay and making sure people feel they're being well rewarded, not just for the work they've done now, but what they were doing during the pandemic. It's about fixing the pensions problems that clearly exist around doctors in particular and doing what you can to put the plug in the bath as well as trying to fill the bath at the same time. It's not a sensible approach to think about training people, which will take, you know, five, ten years, going overseas to find them. Everyone's looking for doctors and nurses overseas. So the first immediate priority is to take action on uh, keeping people, the retention agenda. And pay, I'm afraid, for government is a really big part of that. And they're going to have to rethink their approach to pay in the NHS this year. Yeah. When we look um, at the figures for uh, the energy uh, bailout that that government is very much focused on too, it is actually in about the the same order uh, of figure um, as we spend on the NHS. So, you know, that 180, 190 billion pounds that the NHS price tag per year, you are balloting your members uh, along with Unison and Unite on industrial action seeking better pay what sort of percentage increase are you looking for? Because that is, you know, very, very important given the competing demands for, for government funding. Well, absolutely. And I, I mean, obviously, the costs of doing things on energy are, is a big matter for political debate, isn't it? So, But let's assume it is around that. So, I mean, I think, you know, most of the unions are looking for a pay rise that compensates our members around cost of living. And it's not just energy, it's the general cost of living as well. A lot of our members rely on their own uh, transport to do their jobs and they have to claim mileage and that's not been addressed either as those costs have risen. So the cost of living is the is the benchmark against which we will measure any improvement. I'm afraid for some of our members, we're getting less than 2% at a time that inflation is at over 10%. Uh, so I don't think that is going to be an acceptable position to land on this year. So we're looking for something well more uh, than the sort of 4 4 to 5% that the government has uh, funded, uh, uh, So well, has agreed so far. They're not even funding that full increase. They're funding 3% of it. And another nearly 2 billion has to be found from within the NHS budget. So I think we see pay as very much a political choice. I think they've got to think if there's a 10% vacancy rate at the moment, they want to drive down um, waiting lists as a political priority. They're going to have to think about how they get more staff to stay and join the NHS. And that will mean investing in pay this year and next. On the staffing issue, is the, the I'm, I'm thinking about comparable wages in other countries, like even in yeah. Ireland, the, the wages for healthcare staff are significantly higher, particularly for doctors in the in the yeah. Irish health service. How, what's the differential? How how much does the NHS have to do to be able to compete internationally? Because some of the workforce traditionally has always come from outside of this country. Well, I think, I mean, that's a very good question in terms of is that our strategy for the future? Are we competing in a global uh, uh, work, you know, workplace or not, because I think you're right. I mean, I don't have the figures for comparative, you know, doctors pay across across Europe, say, but 
what is clear is I think we're competing against the rest of the British economy. So people have choices to make and they will make a choice to stay in the NHS or leave it depending on what else is going on in, in Britain. And also people tend to train somewhere, they tend to stay there as well. So it's not simply, it, although we do try and go overseas to, to plug gaps, it's not necessarily the only way you, you, you recruit people. I think there needs to be an attractive set of paying conditions for people so that they don't get tempted elsewhere in the mm. economy. I was talking to a chief executive of a trust in the northeast of England, and she's losing a really senior nurse manager to go and run an Amazon distribution centre because they have the skills, they have the pay rate uh, that's attractive to them, and actually they think they're more valued and wanted in that setting. So you can see that even nursing is not some sort of, you know, they're not held hostage by hospitals. They've got lots of skills and lots of experience that they can take elsewhere in, inside Britain, let alone overseas. So I think that, yeah. for me, is the key one we need to get right. Uh, and then over time, sure, international comparisons will become part of that picture as well. Yeah, very transferable skills. roles, that definitely is a global marketplace. I think that, yeah. Yeah, that is definitely true. And that's also, I mean, the the competition from retailing and hospitality that has yeah. been raised for other sectors in the economy, things like teachers, teaching assistants, the, those sorts of jobs. Um, look, ten percent pay rise—that's what's being sought by nurses. Is that is that what you would be satisfied with? Do you think for your members? I think I think we would see that as be you know that would be a, a very good outcome this year. I mean. It, the reason why 10% is the figure is not because we're necessarily saying catch up with a very significant pay drop over 10 years. It's about the cost of living this year. I think it is biting people at all levels, particularly low-paid staff. And a lot of my members are managers and they see the impact it's having on their their staff of, of these kinds of uh, inflation rates. But I think the government has got to start thinking uh, about something much more significant than 4 and 10%, given where we are economically and with an eye to what inflation might do next year, may have sounded outlandish a couple of years ago. It sounds pretty much on the mark this year. Okay, John Restall, Chief Executive of Managers and Partnership, thank you very much for speaking to us. That was John Restall, Chief Executive of Managers in Partnership, the trade union for managers in the NHS and social care. Well, Queen Elizabeth will be leaving Buckingham Palace today for the very last time, departing at 2.22. Her Manchester's coffin will be transported uh, through St James's Park and on to Westminster, followed, of course, by the new King, King Charles III, and other senior members of the royal family. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.